hospital, but they did an x-ray and it showed that there was no pneumonia. There was no signs of aspiration uh, because she had actually taken a little bit of water on Monday, so there was no sign of that in her lungs. They said it was just some pockets where there were just some deep secretions, and the respiratory doctor said that sometimes that happens when you're starting to wean off the trach. So we got, by God's grace, that cleaned up, and she is doing much better, had no issues after that. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, yesterday were good. But, of course, everything had to happen on Tuesday when it was just me and Emma. Jody had driven to Johnson City to take care of a few things with the house and look at some things. And the nurses came in and said, you better call Jody. And I thought, do I have to? Um, because when she got there, she said, I'm never leaving her again um, at all. But everything, everything worked out, and we're very thankful. And getting closer to the time we'll make the transition home. So continue to pray for that. This morning we are concluding a series that began at the 1st of November where we were taking a look. Why do we do the things we do in worship? Sometimes you need to step back and ask those questions. Why do we gather together to worship corporately? Why do we focus on preaching when we worship? Last week we looked at why do we set aside portions of the service for prayer and the reading of scripture. And this morning as we move into a season that is filled with song... I wanted us to take a look at why we sing as a congregation. Why do we devote a large portion of our time to singing as a group? Think about it. There are very few organizations, groups that gather together and make singing a major part of what they do. So this morning my desire is to make the case before you from the scripture that singing is not an optional part of the service for the believer. My goal is to make a case from the Bible that every believer, without exception, should engage in congregational singing. Now to do that, I thought, well, a good place to start could be the Psalms. After all, that's the largest book of the Bible, 150 chapters that are songs. And I could argue that if so much of the scripture, the largest book of the Bible, is a book devoted to songs, hymns, surely we need to be singing. I thought I could make the argument that those songs cover the entire spectrum of our journey on life. We look at psalms where we need reassurance that God is with us and we can go and we can sing with the psalmist David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Those times we feel distant from God and we can say with our Lord when he was up on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or those times of joy, we could come together with the Hallel psalms and we could say together and sing, hallelujah. But then I thought, no. Just because you have a songbook doesn't mean you have to sing. Hmm. I, I do this a lot now. Um, so I thought, you know, I could go back a step further. We could go back to Moses. And we could look at from the book of Exodus that after they had crossed the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army began to pursue them, that God caused the water to cave in upon the enemy, 
And when they got to the other side, the first thing Moses did is he led the congregation in singing a hymn of praise, praise to God who hurled the rider and the the, the horse into the sea. And Miriam got so excited that she wrote a song. She wrote a song saying, The Lord, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. And the ladies and Miriam started to dance. And I thought that could get me fired if I started talking about singing and dancing. And I thought, surely, when we start thinking about salvation, I could make the case from salvation that we ought to all sing. That when we begin to remember that, that our enemy has been destroyed upon the cross, that should surely cause us to sing. When I begin to talk about the delight of the deliverance we have in Jesus Christ, surely that makes the case that we all ought to sing together. But no. Sometimes life takes its toll on us. And our salvation, the fire of it, begins to get a little bit weak, and so we don't often focus on that. Then I thought, I know, I'll go to the New Testament. I'll show how from the beginning of the New Testament to the end of it, it is a book filled with song. You start out in, in Luke with Mary saying, My soul does magnify the Lord. And then you end in Revelation with the citizens of heaven singing together, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. And I could say, surely if the scope of history entails singing from the birth of Jesus and singing at the return and the establishment of the kingdom upon heaven and upon earth, surely, surely that shows us that we ought to sing. No? Because does that mean we have to sing every time we meet together to worship? So in my conundrum, my heart was drawn to Ephesians 5. A passage very familiar to us. And I want to read the entire paragraph, but I only want to focus really on three verses. Ephesians 5 verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk in other words think about how you live not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is I do not get drunk on wine with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I thought, there's my case. This is where I can show that singing, congregational singing, is an integral part of the believer's life. Draw your attention to verse 18 where the command is. Not the command to sing, but the command to be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. And he's saying rather than letting some external substance control your thinking and your actions, believer, you are to be controlled and your actions are to be dictated by the Spirit. 
You're to be spirit-controlled. So to that end, he says, be filled with the Spirit. But the interesting thing is, is that there are, if you're a grammatical person or a person that likes grammar, there are five participles that follow that command. Now, the only reason I point that out is, is that these participles, these parts of speech, show what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. So in other words, these five things result from being filled with the Spirit. Now, to help us get a visual of this, I direct your attention to the screens. Because there we see, first of all, the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a command that is an ongoing command. And it's a passive command. Now what that means is, is that we are to have the mindset that calls out to God, fill me, O Lord, with your Spirit. I can't make the Spirit fill me. But God, you can. I want to cooperate continually that your spirit overflows my life. Be filled with it. Now, how do I know the spirit has filled me? That's where these five things come in. You'll see them first. If we are filled with the spirit, what will happen is that we will be addressing one another. We'll talk to one another. But notice the language we will use. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When you're filled with the Spirit, you engage with others. And you engage using song. Psalms from the psalm book. Hymns. We, are, we believe were hymns that were used to instruct. The New Testament contains several hymns. For example, one of the better known from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, to have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and was obedient even unto death, death on a cross. That was a song they sang to teach. You'll address one another in songs, born of the Spirit. But then he goes on to the next thing. Being filled with the Spirit will result in singing and making melody. And notice he goes on to describe that to the Lord with your heart. It's very interesting. The word singing, that is a verb form of the word songs. The word melody is a verb form of the word hymns. It's like he's emphasizing this. You address one another with these songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then guess what? Now you turn vertical. You praise God through the songs and the hymns. And you do this to his glory. There's a third aspect of it. What does he say? Giving thanks to the Lord. And then finally he says submitting to one another. Addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting to one another are all results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So you wonder, am I walking in the Spirit? One of the gauges we can use is this. Am I addressing one another in song? Am I singing to the Lord with my heart? Am I giving thanks? Am I submitting to one another? Now, because of our, our topic this morning, I was drawn to the fact that out of these five, three of them deal with singing. This connection between being filled with the Spirit and singing, it's very clear. Singing becomes an integral part of the believer as they are filled with the Spirit. So the question then becomes, why? Why is singing such a part of this? Because you could make the argument that when the Spirit fills a believer, that believer may not preach, but that believer will sing. When the Spirit fills a believer, that believer may not teach, but that believer will sing. 
When the Spirit fills a believer, that believer may not lead, but that believer will sing. So the question becomes, why? What's the connection? As we look at the Scripture, I think it becomes very clear. Let's start with this idea of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit does not mean being resaved. There's a distinction. If you look back just a chapter or two, we're going old school on this one, so you actually have to turn the Bible back a few pages. It's not on the screens. Ephesians 1. Look, if you will, down to verse 13. This is an incredible passage that I will make reference to again later in the sermon. Verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. I've often joked the Apostle Paul is an incredibly great theologian, but a horrible Horrible grammarian. He would not have passed college English 101. English teachers out there somewhere, you're laughing. And it's okay. It's one sentence. He goes on talking about how God works in salvation. Starting with God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. How did he do this? Look down to verse 4. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So God the Father has blessed us. How? Through Jesus Christ. Look down to verse 13. In him you also when you heard the word of the tr of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God the Father has blessed us. How has he blessed us? In Christ he has given us the adoption as sons. He has brought us into the kingdom. And how do we know we are secure in that? Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. That verb sealed is a one-time activity of the Spirit that is not repeated. It is like saying he has crazy glued you into the kingdom and you cannot be ripped out. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But this command in chapter 5 means continually. We have to continually come back to say, Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Now, it's important to understand the language of filling because that's crucial to know what this means and why it is important and how it's connected with singing. This isn't the only place where Paul talks about being filled. Not the only place at all. In fact, the language of being filled is connected to the Old Testament idea of temple. Now, hold on with me here. This is a little bit more of a teaching sermon, so, so bear with me. The idea of a temple. In the Old Testament, and we'll see this up on the screen. I want you to see the progression. In the Old Testament, the temple was a building that showed, that housed, go ahead and put up the next things, if you will, that showed the manifest presence of God. The glory of God would fill the temple. It's not that God was not everywhere. God is omnipresent. But to experience the local point, the focal point of his presence, you would go to the temple. The manifestation of God's glory was there. The fullness of his presence. But then we move along as we progress. Now, Jesus changes this dynamic. The book of Ezekiel, we see a tragic portion where the Spirit of God lifts up and leaves the temple. But then Jesus comes, and in John chapter 2, as he's walking in front of the temple, he says the words, you tear this temple down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. They began to scoff at him. It's taken 40 years to build this, and you'll build it back in three days? And then this truth is realized. He, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Now that language, that language is crucial. 
If the Old Testament temple was the place where the glory and the presence of God resided, then what does that tell you about the body of Jesus? Now it is in Jesus the glory and the presence of God resides. Now, let's review. Let's go to the next slide. So we see the idea of the temple in the Old Testament. Then we move to Jesus. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, what is the church referred to as? The body of Christ. If Jesus says his body is the temple physically, and then we are his body, does that not mean we then, the church, not a building, but the people, we are his temple? Paul uses the language, this language in Ephesians chapter 2. Look up on the screen and you'll see it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, church, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that's temple language, the structure is being built, joined together, now look what is highlighted, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the church growing into that place where God's presence and glory dwells. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God, temple. How is that happening? By the Spirit. So he says, church, you are the dwelling place for God's glory. You are the dwelling place for his presence. You are the culmination of the Old Testament temple now where God dwells. Now, to that end, to that end, notice Paul's prayer in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He prays for the church. You'll see this up on the screen or you can look at it. Ephesians 3 verses 18 through 19. Now remember, church, you're being built together into the fullness of God. You are the temple. And now Paul prays. His prayer for the church is that the church may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and depth and to know the, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now look, look what the culmination of his prayer is. That you may be filled that's temple language. Filled. Filled with what? All the fullness of God. Church, Paul prays that we will be filled with the fullness of God. Now, keeping that language of fullness and being filled in mind, look then again at Ephesians 5, 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is the way the fullness of God inhabits us. The Spirit is the means by which we are filled with the fullness of God. That is the answer to Paul's prayer. It's kind of like saying, you know, at the house there's been so much construction and things going on. And, and you look and say there was a hole and they come in and, and the hole is filled. And they look at me and they say, Mark, did you fill the hole? And I say, yes, I don't know whatever came, came over me. I picked up a shovel and I filled up the hole. So how did you fill it? I filled it with a shovel. The shovel is how the dirt got in the hole. I used a shovel, exerted myself manually, and with the shovel, I filled the hole. How does the fullness of God indwell us? With the Spirit. As the Spirit fills us, we experience the fullness of God. And that is what is to control us. Now, you're probably asking at this point, how in the world is that related to singing? 
I'm getting there. Bear with me. What is the fullness of God? That's the question we deal with now. Is the fullness of God not his manifestation as Trinity? Is that not what Paul laid out in Ephesians 1 where he says God the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus who redeemed you and purchased your adoption and the Holy Spirit has sealed you? Do you not see the Trinitarian language here in this paragraph? Be filled with the Spirit, verse 20, give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trinitarian language flows through this book like blood flows through our body. So, that forms the foundation as to why we sing. The temple is to display the glory and the presence of God. The fullness of God is understood as Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three, yet one. Three that are distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet are one in working together. So if we as the temple are to display the glory and the presence of God, and we are to be filled with the fullness of God, how do we display the Trinity? The answer, singing. How does singing display the Trinity? Because follow my logic here. If we are filled with the Spirit, we will address one another with singing, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and we will address God with song. So how does the fullness of God, the Trinity, expressed in singing? Because singing is unique in that we are still individuals. Yet as we lift our, open our mouths and lift our voices, what is heard is one voice. We're still distinct. But when we sing, there is a melody, there is a unity that comes about where the voices are not distinguished, but they become one. Three and one is the Trinity. As the church, we represent that glory. As this congregation gathers as individuals, yet with one voice, we open our mouths to sing corporately. And singing is unique in making that happen. It's more than just being in unison. This Christmas season, some of you may go and watch the great ballet, The Nutcracker, and you'll see incredibly gifted men and women dance and move in unison in ways that make me sore just thinking about it. It's not the same thing. They're moving in unison, but they're still very individual. But in singing, we are individual, but there is one voice being heard as we gather together. Some would say, well, well, you know, I'm a football player. I think in terms of football, you get this offensive line with these huge men, and they move in unison together, and they, they hit people, and they do it in unison, working together. It's not the same thing. Because we are still individual, yet we have one voice. To demonstrate the fullness of God. Many but one. Trinity, three but one. That's why when we come together and we sing as a congregation, it doesn't matter if our voice is weakened by age. We sing and it joins with younger voices that are strong with youth. And the sound is one voice. It doesn't matter if our voice is deep bass or high soprano. It doesn't matter if we are on key, off key, don't know what a key is. But when we sing together, it is one voice voice because it's not about how we sound it is about demonstrating the glory of God in unity in coming together because when we sing we are becoming one or we are demonstrating the oneness of God and we are showing that in our one voice it doesn't matter where we are from it doesn't matter what the color of our skin is we have the same song in Jesus Christ and we glorify God so when people say what did you do at church today did you hear some preaching yes well what else did you do you can look at them and you can say I ain't 
engaged in a theological enactment to display the fullness of God's glory in a Trinitarian endeavor. Because that's exactly what you do. Congregational singing is not just about getting ready for the sermon. Congregational singing is not just about stirring our emotions. Congregational singing is a statement, a theological statement about God. It's a theological enactment. One of the most difficult things to illustrate is the Trinity. I think singing, congregational singing, comes as close as anything is giving us an understanding of how the Trinity works. Three becoming one. Many that are one in Christ. And it reminds us of our unity. That in Christ we are brought together. Think about it when you're someplace, maybe you're visiting a far-off land and you hear a song that's familiar to you. Doesn't it draw your attention? Suppose even now, you're out somewhere and somebody's phone begins to ring and you hear that familiar strain of, Rocky Top, you'll always be. And you think to yourself, there's someone else that's not ashamed. you feel this affinity, this sense of, hey, hey, I, I, I know what that is. That's the idea of congregational singing. We come from different experiences, different backgrounds, different struggles, and we come together, and as we sing, we are reminded that we are one, and it is the fullness of God that we are putting on display. So you see, when it comes to the issue of congregational singing, the question is not, do you sing well? The real question is, are you filled with the Spirit? That's the real question. Because if you are filled with the Spirit, guess what the results are? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, thanksgiving and submitting. So you see, congregational singing is a gauge by which we can look and we can say, Lord, am I full of your spirit? Am I singing to edify one another? And am I singing to give glory and honor to you? Because that's what the fullness of the spirit's about, glorifying God. Now, all of creation glorifies his name, all of it. The amazing thing is, is that as bioacoustical scientists, First, you've got to love telling your mom and dad, what are you majoring in? Majoring in bioacoustical science. What they do is they measure the sounds of nature. And what they have found is this. Did you know that the electron shell of the carbon atom, okay, the electron shell of the carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as a Gregorian chant? It's as if that atom is chanting. Did you know that the whale song can travel thousands of miles underwater? Meadowlarks in the trees have a range of 300 notes. They've even found that earthworms, yes, earthworms, make faint staccato sounds. I don't know what they're saying, but they're saying it staccato quickly like this every time. Did you also know they have found 
that the single, a single hydrogen atom emits 100 frequencies, and that's more than a grand piano. One scientist put it like this. If we had better hearing and could discern the singing of seabirds, the rhythmic drumming of schools of mollusks, or even the distant harmonics of flies hanging over meadows in the sun, the combined sound might lift us off our feet. All of creation is singing, displaying the glory of God, literally singing. The question is, is the church that is commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit singing? Or to put it more crassly, are we being outsung by a group of mollusks? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. I don't preach this today in order to shame us or, or to lay guilt and say, well, I know I need to sing. My goal is to show that singing goes hand in hand with being filled with the Holy Spirit. If we are filled with the Spirit, we will sing. And if we're not singing, then what is the state of our heart? I'm going to ask Nathan to join me at the front. He and I both will be standing here so that as in, a mo as in a moment when we begin singing a hymn of invitation, he and I will be glad to pray with you. This morning it may be the realization that, you know what? You've not been seeking to be filled with the Spirit. No, that's the root issue. Are we as believers submitting, asking God to fill us? So that we can show the wondrous manifestation of his glory. It may be a recommitment to each day to say, Lord, I want to seek you. And help me, Father. Help me to submit to you. The reason we sing is because we want to show the glory of God in the fullness of the Trinity. Father, you know our hearts. You know the times that we have failed. You know the times, Lord, that we've gotten distracted. You know, Lord, the times where we have let pride stop us from opening our mouths to sing your praise. Forgive us of these things, O oh Lord. Forgive us and draw us closer to you that we will be filled with the Spirit and display to the world around us the fullness of God. Help us to do this, O oh Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's